freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, culminators, I've got another uh, old friend of mine on, I'm finally alternating between old friends and newer friends. David Latt and I were blogging in the 90s, right? Uh, 2000s. Uh, no, uh, early, yeah, early 2000s. <laughs> very early 2000s. Uh, David, of course, had already been known to many of us for uh, when he was um, the uh, anonymous blogger of what was that beneath their robes? Was that, was uh, that underneath the their robes? That's underneath right. their robes. Yes. Yeah, so that's how that's how far back I go with you. Uh, and uh, David, of course, then hosted the famous, if and somewhat notorious, uh, above the law. Uh, which came brought with it its phenomenal discussions, phenomenal in many many ways. And David is now, I guess, you're, you're, he has moved away from uh, away from that project. Uh, David, you're a former Supreme Court clerk. No, so you're a former judicial clerk. You were not a Supreme Court clerk. Uh, you have all kinds of all kinds of um, gaudy um, experience. You were uh, an assistant U.S. attorney for a while. Yes, that's right. Uh, and then you met the, law, the reasonable man standard and left uh, full-time uh, law, law practice, or I guess basically left law practice for, for social media. And you, I mean, I, I consider you one of the handful of people really who created the legal blogosphere and to a large extent, the legal alternative media scene. So I'm really, really happy to have you on here, especially in this moment of struggle, this moment of controversy for uh, speech, free speech, free expression, Anything interesting going on in that category, you think? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, where to begin? <laughs> so I thought, as I mentioned to you bef uh, before we uh, started recording, recording, that uh, we may as well begin with Yale Law, um, where you had uh, some beginning yourself, after all. Talk about it. Tell us. You, you graduated uh, Yale Law, I guess, so in, the early, in the 90s? Yes, I graduated mm -hmm. in 1999. Okay, so you know you are still a very young man, uh, from my perspective. Anyway, 1999 <laughs> though it was a, it may have been 1899 compared to how <laughs> much things have changed radically, radically. Uh, now it's 2022, and what was always known as arguably the most intellectual and least practical place to go to law school has become just another. Heckler's Veto Institution. What, what's going on? Yes, yeah, so there have been a series of events at Yale Law School going back to last year. Well, really going back farther, but in, I would say, the past year or so, 2021, 2022, uh, things have really come to a head. There have been a series of events that raise very concerning questions about the future of free speech and academic freedom at Yale Law School. The most recent event, which we can start with, is on March 10, the Federalist Society hosted an event 
with I'm two speakers. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the rudest host of the world because notwithstanding the fact that I didn't get into Yale Law School, I we, we're both privileged to be graduates of elite institutions. And I want listeners to understand, if they don't already, why it matters, why what happens at Yale Law School really, really matters. And, and one of the reasons for that is not just because it's Yale, because as a Princeton man, I can tell you Yale sucks, <laughs> but because Princeton doesn't have a law school, so I can say it's the only Ivy League law school that did not reject me. Um, Yale Law School is by far the elite law school in this country. In my opinion, it's Yale, Stanford, Harvard. Harvard runs all kinds of things, but as an elite educational institution, not so much. Reasonable people can disagree on that. But in terms of Supreme Court justices and uh, people in, in, in not so much academia these days, but certainly influence, influential people, people who, who, who are very much part of today's government elite, Yale Law School is an extremely dominant and influential institution. That's why what happens at Yale Law School matters a ton. Now, back to March 10th. Actually, let me backtrack and talk about, just to echo what you were saying, Ron, about why Yale Law School matters, a couple of things. As you mentioned, a lot of political leaders and leaders in the law come from Yale Law School. Four members of the U.S. Supreme Court are Yale Law School graduates. Both of the Clintons, as you mentioned, are Yale Law School graduates. Members of the Senate, ranging from Josh Hawley to Cory Booker, are Yale Law School graduates. So that's one reason. It's a training ground for future leaders. A second reason Yale matters is it's a training ground for future law professors and deans. So Yale produces something like 20% of the nation's law professors, many of them also deans. And so the Yale ethos and Yale values get transmitted to the 200 plus other ABA accredited law schools. So that's the second reason Yale matters. And I think a third reason sort of consistent with what you were saying is it is a very prestigious institution. A lot of other law schools watch it. It's been at the top of the US news rankings since those rankings started for law schools. And so uh, people ask often, why does this matter? Isn't this just a tempest in a teapot? But it matters a lot for the future of legal education, for the future of the legal profession and for the future of the country more broadly. And, and in fact, you could, you could even argue that one of the ways it matters is even separate and apart from what, what Yale Law School produces is, is the, the leadership position that Yale has in legal academia. And what is accepted at Yale doesn't automatically get accepted at every other law school, but it is a signal institution. People look to it just as until very recently, people looked at Princeton, as I mentioned, my alma mater, as along with Chicago, two of the really outstanding elite academic institutions that had succeeded in not surrendering completely to wokeism. Princeton has decided to to jettison that spot, at least for the time being. Um, And maybe I have to have another discussion with Robert George if he's up to it. But Yale matters a lot. So now, some stuff that's happening at Yale that matters as well. So the most recent event, which took place on March 10, was a discussion hosted by the Federalist Society, which is a group of conservative and libertarian law students and lawyers. They hosted a panel featuring two speakers. One was Kristen Wagner of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a conservative, uh, religiously oriented nonprofit. And then the other organization, is the American Humanist Association, which is a left of center organization represented by Monica Miller. 
the two organizations worked together on a case in the Supreme Court actually involving remedies for violations of free speech. And so they got together to talk about this case and about the importance of free speech and about how people can work across ideological lines in service of shared goals. What happened was really an ironic commentary on the more than 100 students protested the event. And instead of just protesting by holding up signs quietly or leaving the room quietly as the event got underway or staging a counter event at the same time in a different classroom with different speakers, they tried to shout down the event. As the event got underway, they took over the microphones essentially and tried to make so much noise that the speakers could not speak. And one of the protesters even shouted when admonished by the moderator, Professor Kate Stith, this is our free speech, arguing that shouting down other people is a form of free speech, which no First Amendment scholar will tell you is a legitimate viewpoint. But anyway, uh, luckily the protesters eventually left, but what ended up happening was they went to the hallway where they made huge amounts of noise. They did disrupt the event, even though it officially did go forward, it was very hard for people to hear what was going on. And they disrupted other events at Yale Law School too because they were in the hallway. They disrupted multiple classes, they disrupted a faculty meeting, which had to be taken online. They disrupted some people who were taking the New York law exam, which is uh, sort of a self-administered test uh, that was going on at the time. It was highly, highly disruptive to the working of the law school. And so this is really the state of, of free speech today. Uh, you know, people will disagree on this sort of technical definition of heckler's veto, but this is definitely a situation where people tried to drown out speech that they did not like. And that and and this this seems to be something that no one in a faculty leadership position at Yale is prepared to resist or admonish or address even in any meaningful way. So the moderator of the event, Professor Kate Stith, she did try to quiet the protesters down. And at one point she even told them to grow up, which led to booing and hissing, uh, even though I think her point was sort of correct. Uh, and one issue, I think, is that Dean Heather Gerken, who's the head of the law school, uh, has not, I think, been sufficiently uh, full-throated in her defense of free speech. Although it's funny, just as we were getting online to record this, today being Monday, March 28, uh, I just saw that Dean Gerken issued a message reaffirming oh. Yale's commitment to free speech. So more than almost two weeks after the event in, uh, gosh, the event was on March 10th, so it is more than two weeks. More than two weeks after this event, she finally got around to condemning what happened. Uh, there was a similar event that happened at UC Hastings Law School. And you had, let me just point out on the 21st, you had urged her to do so. <laughs> oh, you I guess that's right. I, I, to, 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 me, to me, I see 100% correlation and causation. <laughs> uh, uh, David, uh, on his Substack, wrote an open letter to, to Dean Gherkin. And I'll just point out that, you know, you, you make it clear, it's not as if you're on a first name basis, you have met her, she knows who you are. But of all the things, this to me was uh, the, the scariest paragraph, which was that, ver you know, many faculty members, um, or several, agree with you. I mean, I would, it's, I would hope that almost all of them do. Um, but they're not willing to publicly say so because they're intimidated. They are, they are plain old intimidated. That's, that's shameful. That's astonishing to me. 
So I will say one thing in defense of some of these faculty members. Now, to the extent that they are not speaking out because they don't want to be criticized, I think that is really shameful. One of them put it this way. This professor said, well, look, uh, I am trying to teach some of these students. I'm trying to persuade them, including perhaps to a more free speech friendly point of view. And if I come out guns blazing, if I come out too aggressively, they might just tune me out. And so pedagogically, I need to meet these students where they are and I can't come on too strong because then they're gonna tune me out. So uh, that is one sort of spin on the defense, but I think it is definitely true that professors are afraid to speak out. And pretty much every time I speak to a member of the faculty, they say, this is definitely off the record or not for attribution. Uh, please don't say anything. Uh, so so yeah. this, uh, you know, while you're talking, I, yep. I pulled this Oh, here up. it is, perfect just came out i'm you know she's she is directly addressing now you and i last spoke actually at a federal society virtual event um shortly after you left the hospital uh and you know we're becoming to come back to yourself after your very very serious bout with covid and it was a federal society event and you know one of the things that federal society always strives to do at its events is to always have both points of view. And I, I will remember that when I was president of the Federalist Society chapter at Northwestern, we tried to get, we, we had a debate on capital punishment and we had a well-known conservative writer and speaker who was, who was a, you know, very, well known for his views on this topic. And I asked one of our very, very liberal uh, faculty members if he would be his, you know, his, his, if he would take the other side of the issue. And he said to me, nah, he, you know, so-and-so, he's not really listening. Basically he, he evaded it. He didn't want to have the debate. And I assure you he was up to it. Um, there, there is something about conservatives and they get killed all the time. And in my timeline, I retweet lots of people killing them and how Republicans and conservatives have this, this facile and naive concept of fair play that causes them and us to lose everything all the time. And I'm pathetically saying, but let's not become what we hate. But the Federal Society events always always have both sides represented to the extent they can get someone and many leaders, Nadine Strauss, or many people who are known for their association with the left wing have consistently tried to involve themselves and, and to be part of these debates. That just doesn't, not only does that not cut it for, for what it's essentially become the establishment radicalism or the establishment, the, I guess we could say the woke position. I don't want to just be involved in name calling here, but that in and of itself is an offense because it legitimizes the debate by suggesting that there's more than one point of view on almost anything. How did we get here? So, uh, you know, it's interesting. The, I think in some ways you could trace this back actually to law schools. I think that the current contagion of uh, hostility to free speech in law schools came from outside of the legal academy. Much of it comes from undergraduate or uh, graduate student 
graduate school disciplines, like, I don't know, sociology or uh, literature departments or philosophy departments or various other departments. But some of that thinking about, say, issues of identity and race actually goes back to the law in terms of critical race theory, which I know you've talked about with some of your other guests. And when it first came out in the legal academy, critical race theory didn't really get that much traction in the legal academy, but it kind of got traction in other areas of academia. And now it's getting traction nationwide and well beyond law schools or even universities, even if critical race theory as such is not being taught to elementary schoolers, which is a point that the left loves to trot out, its values, its worldview is being perpetuated. And so in some ways, the legal academy is eating itself. It started this way of thinking. It didn't get initial traction in the legal academy, which I think for many years did have an admirable attraction to liberal lowercase l values and free speech. But now the chickens are coming home to roost. You know, and to some extent that might have to do, do you think, and this is a really more of a Brian Leiter question. And of course he, he's our mirror image ideologic, ideologically to the extent you and I are one image, which we're not, but you know how he so rigorously keeps track and score of faculty appointments. And, and he, you know, he's phenomenal. He and I worked together in our, at Kay Scholler back in the ancient times. And I wonder how much this has to do with faculty appointments, uh, younger faculty coming in and sending a message, you know, you know, having imbibed this in their undergraduate years already, you know, in the 80s and 90s, um, and even in the pre first decade of the, of the 21st century, you know, it's part and parcel of the way every academic discipline now looks at problems. And the, the, and the, and the thing about the Socratic method is, it, it has a way when it's employed properly. And I don't know, when you were in law school, did you have any, I, I, I want to speak too soon. I had a lot of old fashioned professors who were not even that old, but who did use the Socratic method. Did you, you, you had, a, you had yes, that, right? Absolutely. I think it was not quite as, it was, it was still quite used. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not maybe like in the paper chase where, yeah. you know, with these, these strict, you know, brutal, uh, you know, but it does have a way of, it has something in common with with a critical approach, the critical academic, um, uh, what's it called? Um, you know, a paradigm, the way the way of breaking problems down. But one thing it doesn't allow for, and which I find the, the really problem, the, the idea that there's no that there is a category of analysis or reasoning that is unacceptable. That is, that is off the table. I mean, I will say I, I was first acquainted with the idea that there is such a thing in the context of Holocaust denial. And I, you know, it's intriguing to me how my own position on that topic has had to be reconsidered in light of what we're seeing here. So there, you know, because through most of my adult life, it was understood that, listen, you're not, we're not even gonna engage these people as people like, you know, in my family who, actually lived it you don't have to engage with people who are claiming that you and your family didn't live it and therefore we're going to consider such views to to be not not presented in good faith and not therefore deserving of consideration 
And I don't hear that as a rationale. I don't hear that being used as a rationale. Well, don't you say that? I mean, on the one hand, I guess we say on Twitter, right? Yeah, that's what Hitler would say. I mean, to some extent, that's it's the that's what Hitler would. Say. It's a little bit of, of the you know the Godwin law, Godwin's law in reverse, but it is it is hard to imagine that you know that that if people were being exposed to the stripped bare ex, you know um, uh, experience of Socratic reasoning that they would be able to find themselves in a room shouting down other people. Who are trying to express opposing points of view? You know, so so. Yeah, I think I think your point. I think I think faculty has something to do with it. There's also, let's face it, it's in the air on a campus. It's just it's everywhere you go, and you can't. Actually, ironically, at Northwestern, it, we were there with the medical school, who who you know, the, the least thoughtful people in the entire academy. You know, because their job is to memorize every atom of the human body. They're not there. You know. We weren't, we weren't in, you know, in, in Evanston, uh, but, but in typical laws, typically law schools are in the same place that the rest of the university is. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere and it's impossible to escape. For a long time, the Federalist Society was something of a counterbalance, but there's also no question that Federalist Society, and you, you know, you, you've always been fascinated from your first days on the internet with the way lighter is with faculty, with judicial appointments. Where is somebody coming from? What's their background? What's their orientation? How cute are they? <laughs> that was by far the most fun part of those days. And we have not really been dealing, so far, I think it's fair to say that the judiciary, by and large, has resisted this trend. There are no judges I'm aware of that have said shout that, that the heckler's veto is a form of free speech or that is, is deserving of being respected. Judges have been great on this and the Supreme Court has been great on this. I think it is, do you think the, the, the present concern with Judge Jackson, regardless of, of the, the boxes that it's put in, but given her youth and given her association, how shall I put this? Everyone knows that she was nominated because she's a black woman. How do we know the president said that's why she was nominated? That among, out of the black women who might be considered for Supreme Court, she was among the very most qualified and she on paper has fantastic qualifications. But she rec she may represent a, an age and, and um, orientation line that you might draw between her and Justice Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor still being closer to my age than to your age, and being more of an old-fashioned, an old, you know, an old-fashioned sort in terms of First Amendment. And she, you know, I got her vote on the Slants case. Judge Jackson might very well represent, in many respects, an entirely new, you know, it's a new generation. Generations, I think, are short these days. They're not thirty-five years but a kind of a new blood, a new kind of person, more like what you find on campus now than what you found on campus when I was there in the eighties. You don't think so? You think uh, I don't think so. She's a little older than I am. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, it's more the, it's more people who are younger than I am, probably who, 10 or 20 who, years. Who are the people you think are going to be more, or more likely to be woke 
Yeah, judges. although, you know, I, look, I, I do think that some of this is spreading from the academy to the profession. Aaron Sabarium had a good piece on Barry Weiss's Substack about how some of these ideas are spreading from legal academia to practice. Yes, but, that, that was the crisis piece that everyone was passing around on Friday. That was yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but that said, uh, I'm not totally pessimistic in the sense that I don't know how far this ethos can go in the profession because the profession of law is, in, is itself built upon ideas of intellectual engagement. It is an adversarial system where of course you have to have one idea and an opposite idea and they have to hash it out in a courtroom or at a negotiating table. So I don't really, uh, I don't know how you can still quote unquote do law without some openness to conflicting ideas. In other words, uh, it's, a it's a dialectic yeah, approach. Exactly. So I just don't know how you can uh, have a system like ours with those types of, of values. Now, look, I mean, who knows what will happen. And I think if you get more and more intolerant people, then maybe you'll get there. But I, I don't think that the profession is going to go the way of the academy just yet. I, I hope it won't. Well, let me suggest two, two reasons for pessimism. And, and, and I, by the way, I go to sleep every night confident that things are going to be fine in the morning. <laughs> that's just a genetic problem. That, that's a, you know, a deformity of my brain that I have that I just keep hoping and I keep knocking my head against the wall. But intellectually speaking, I, there are two reasons I'm pessimistic about that. One is that it, law firms, are the, are the culture in which, first of all, 95% of the country's lawyers do not practice and have virtually no exposure to whatsoever. Nonetheless, the firms that you and I know very well, the AMLO 100, let's say, or even the AMLO 200, are, even if they're not woke themselves, they dare not be explicitly non-woke unless they have a very, very unusual client group. There's a lot of, so there's a, an institutional pressure that inevitably is going to, if anything, if it teaches nothing, it will teach lawyers to be intimidated in a way that historically they were considered to have, you know, the famous example or counterexample, the ACLU defending actual Nazis, not Twitter Nazis, real Nazis, real neo-Nazis in Skokie. That was something one proudly did, and, and that's not on the table anymore. Reason number one for pessimism. Reason number two is sensitive territory, Obergefell. One of the most remarkable things about Obergefell, and it was noted by, I, I think it was Scalia's, um, I think it was Scalia, said, okay, I understand you really disagree with us on this. Or was it Roberts? You're not only disagreeing with the minority, you're calling us names. You're, call, you're saying that we're not only that, you're not saying, listen, we understand that, with, that the minority is, is representing a point of view that has been the point of view of Western civilization for the last thousand years, or that has valid, rather it was, you're practically Nazis. You're bigots. This is the word. How could, what could you possibly have been thinking? That I think was a signal moment in the history of the, of our judiciary, when I mean, at least at least the minority. It's a good thing to have lifetime tenure, I suppose. At least the minority acknowledged that this was going on, and that it was, and that it was really of, of questionable propriety. But five justices signed on to it. it. It's a good thing that the minority acknowledged it, 
but it is still a little bit distressing that five justices signed onto it. That same result could have been obtained without the name calling. And with it, it was, it, you can't shut down uh, a Supreme Court dissent, but the language and extremeness that was used, and I, I do think you find it picked up in subsequent judicial opinions when these issues would come up because now they have this majority opinion to pull from where it's basically been held as a matter of Supreme Court precedent that to disagree with the extension of the marriage right to homosexual unions is to be deemed a bigot as a matter of law. Although in a defamation case, that would be considered really an opinion, of course. What, what, so why is my pessimism unjustified? Give me, um, give me a boost. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think that, again, I think that there, I think that there's only so far you can go because the country at large does not share the extreme intuitions of the campus activists. So take something like Obergefell. You know, I'm uh, I'm gay. I'm in a I'm in a I'm married to another man, and I. <laughs> Uh, Which listeners know, know that should know that I knew, and when I asked yeah. you, and that you know, I, I also know that you can have a point of view, and also yeah. consider so points of view. I guess what I'm saying with Obergefell is, polling suggests, and I, I think this is just something we know in our everyday lives that a lot of people don't have these days a huge problem with um, with state recognition of same sex unions. You know, churches religious organizations, that's a different story. And they are still allowed to have their own definitions of marriage. That's fine. Um, but I think what people are uncomfortable with, or what I think a lot of moderate people are uncomfortable with, you know, for example, are these lawsuits against people who have religious objections, where they're trying to essentially force these people to say, bake a cake or design a website or take photographs at a gay wedding. And I think there are many Americans who are supportive of the right to same-sex marriage, but at the same time are not supportive of these lawsuits. So I think that there's, I think that many Americans, just sort of your average person on the street are very sensible people. Uh, and I don't know how, how, how far you can push some of these things to the left without encountering just the sensibilities of the American people. I mean, look at what happened in the Virginia gubernatorial election. Look at what happened with the San Francisco school board. As long as we live in a democracy at a certain point, you did hit a wall on some of this stuff. Um, I, now I we'll see how, law, how, how well this wall can hold, but um, you, know, you can only outpace public opinion by so much for so long. And I think you're right. And I think part of what is happening is, as you mentioned, the, the leading radical edge of the general trend results in pushback and results in opportunities for the right or just the old fashioned center. One, one of the things I always said about Trump, everyone knew he wasn't really a conservative, in certainly a social conservative, no. What he was in so many ways, and people just are, are so prejudiced, they, they find this hard to get their arms around and on, on both sides. His point of view on issues such as these was the most regular guy point of view you could possibly imagine. What does a regular guy want? Strong, strong military is good. Not bad, good. 
uh, men and women uh, should have families. Uh, uh, you know, abortion uh, is a little bit creepy. Like, not this sort of, you know, moral majority kind of point of view, but just basically, you know, lunch, lunchbox America. The question is, going back to the beginning, uh, you know, as we come towards our, towards our time limit here, which is very flexible, but how important are the feelings of the people of, of Yale Law? Or the, you know, or the, of what happens at Yale Law? So, you know, the very, very good news is that this statement from the dean, and I'm not going to suggest culminators that if the dean says something that magically makes everything okay. But here's the money graph, right? This behavior was unacceptable. At a minimum, it violated the norms of law school. This is an institution of higher learning. I don't have to read. Culminators can all read. But she, she obviously had a come to Jesus moment. She should have pardoned the expression uh, among the faculty. She may have been intimidated in the moment. She may have been indecisive in the moment. Whether she will follow up on this appropriately, I'm sure remains to be seen. But it's a moral statement from one of the adults. And that's that's what we're still counting on to some extent, especially at a, you know, at a place like Yale, especially like at a place like Yale Law. I mean, really, no one cares what happens at Yale Business School, <laughs> you know, or, or even Yale Medical School. Um, but a Yale law, Yale law is is really is really it. So you know th this is a good development. I'm glad it happened before before we recorded this, so we at least have have that context. You know, I don't think there's any question that that um, this statement by Dean Gherkin is not not the result of an attempt. Uh, she's not trying to appease any right wingers. Um, nothing could be further from the orientation of anybody who could ever be appointed the dean of <laughs> Yale Law School in our lifetimes. Um, so it's a good, that's a good development, uh, you know, and I think there is reason for optimism. How about your own stuff? Uh, are you, you're, have you been shouted down anywhere? Have you, has anyone given you a hard, I mean, look, you, you don't take particularly strident right-wing opinions. On the other hand, by talking, I mean, there are a lot of people who are in very comparable ideological spaces to yours who have declined to join me and I'm you know I can think of much more right-wing personalities than myself but people who, who follow me and enjoy my my content but who don't want to be known as going on a conservative politically conservative podcast you, you've never you've never been afraid of stuff um, especially after you were outed as the <laughs> the anonymous blogger you know there is no anonymity that lasts forever on, on, on the internet anyone giving you a hard time over anything no, I definitely get people who disagree with me, but I think that's fine. And I, I welcome that kind of disagreement. And again, uh, on Twitter, sometimes the usual name calling. But again, I, I feel that one thing proponents of free speech need to keep in mind is that if we can dish it, we can take it. Uh, and so, for example, I was disappointed when individual members of the Stanford Federalist Society got upset by this parody that this student, this third year student named Nicholas Wallace had made of the Federalist Society, basically calling them a bunch of fascists or suggesting that they supported January 6th or something like that. And they complained to the administration about him and his diploma was put on hold for a while. And I just thought that was really 
very oh, poor, a very poor move on their part. If they wanted to make fun of him back, if they wanted to explain why he was wrong, what have you, that would have been fine. But to go running to the administration, that's a move the other side takes. We don't do that. Like, no, you, you, And I know, I remember I once, you, I once complained to you about something in the comment section of Above the Law, which as you know, could get quite rough and tumble. And I thought somebody was really pushing it about Jewish law partners in big firms. And you looked at it and you said, I'm fine with it, Ron. I think, I think, I think we can, we can handle this. Uh, fine. That, you know, I mean, you, everyone can have his rules uh, and, and, you know, apply them as appropriate. You know, as I said at the beginning, what's, what is my view now towards Holocaust denial? I have to say that given First of all, I've never claimed to be a free speech absolutist, and many of the people I've had on my show are, but my views are more like my, by and large, um, many of my affirmatively Catholic guests who, you know, they're not necessarily endorsing the, the use of the directory as of, uh, uh, or the index rather, the Vatican index as of, uh, although I think I mentioned it once and someone said, no, it's not, we don't, they don't even have that anymore. But an ordered society can have issues of dignity and issues of propriety and paywalls and things like that. It's a complicated issue. And you and I are not going to, even if we had a fresh 45 minutes, we wouldn't figure it out. But I do think that I've had to move a little bit more towards not being rejectionist as such in the sense of that's a conversation that mean that I believe should never be had for a couple of reasons. One of them is we're, we're not talking to survivors anymore. Okay. The handful of survivors that do walk today, these are people in their eighties and nineties. They're not on the internet. They're, no one feelings are going to be that hurt. They're not going to be destroyed. Not that that, I mean, the Supreme court rejected that as a basis for restraining the, the Skokie Nazis, of course. But I do think that by avoiding an issue and saying that we can't discuss it, we do turn it into a taboo. We invest it, we invest the opposition to the received. And also we have learned, and boy, we could have spent a whole session on this. We've learned how narratives are manufactured. And I'm not gonna sit here and I'm not gonna put you in the position of having made me say this and say, <laughs> there are narratives about the Holocaust and that there are narratives about the founding of the state of Israel that time has shown us may not have been entirely accurate. These are complicated issues in human affairs. Um, the trick is, and this is the advantage of people who go to very good law schools, if people try to argue the facts with people who are well-trained at analyzing arguments, we should be able to dice them and slice them pretty well. And we know how to, and we know how to do research to, to, you know, to deal with poorly argued cases. You're optimistic. At the end of the day, I'm optimistic. You do are you anything planned ahead? Anything anywhere I should point people in the direction of besides your Substack? Uh, are you going to start an institution? Are you going <laughs> to? Are, are you going to? It's just, you know, you're you are young. You 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 can't be like in semi-retirement now. What's going to be? Uh, no, I don't have anything in particular planned. I continue to I will continue to write about these issues and. Uh, speak about them, uh, certainly on my Substack, Original Jurisdiction, certainly on my Twitter feed, certainly in speaking engagements in various places. But I don't have any 
a broader plan yeah, yet, but yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll see. I mean, this is obviously an issue that resonates with a lot of people. The stories I get about Yale, even if it's just one law school, get a lot of readership. Uh, it's something that a lot of people are following, even if they have no connection whatsoever uh, to Yale, going back to what we started this uh, uh, discussion with. So uh, anyway, I, I am trying to also be an optimist because there are a lot of private conversations I have. I mean, we all have this experience, but private conversations with people, including moderate or even left-wing people who say, oh, I'm very troubled by what's going on. And at a certain point, those people are going to speak up. They're already starting to speak up. They're already starting to vote. And so I'm optimistic or hopeful. I don't know where this is gonna end up, who knows? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, I I'm hopeful that at some point this fever will break. I think, I think it will. I think it will. And I, you know, the Democrats evidently do read polls. Yeah. And there are some of them who, you know, there are people, look, the funny thing about the congressional versus senatorial presidential elections is that they're so local. And there are, there, so there's this fringe that knows that they're going to be elected forever, no matter what positions they take. And they would like, they would like to get some action on them. But then there's the great middle and then there's the presidential candidates. So the amazing thing about Joe Biden was that you ran here a candidate that was irrationally, I think, at this point, perceived as moderate, when in fact, he, what he really was, was he had moderate neural activity at this point. Um, it was clear to me that he was not going to be the decision maker uh, in any meaningful way, the policy setter. Um, and he's not. So what you have is more of that fringe. I mean, the fact is, the, I think the Obama crowd is a little less bomb throwy than the OAC crowd. But these are complicated matters as well. David, thank you so much. We must do this again sometime. It, it, by the way, on your Substack, it, it, you said speaking. Do, do you do do you do videos as, as well as or do you or do you do you do interviews or is it just writing? I have mainly writing. I have not really branched out yet into other media. I mean, obviously, I'll come on other podcasts like sure. this one, but anyone, um, obviously. <laughs> but I, I, uh, I it, right now, yeah, it's it's mainly a written uh, cool. medium. Well, I really urge people to familiarize themselves with the thought of David Latt. And I, you know, I, I need to subscribe to your Substack so that I can have a, a, another hundred unread emails <laughs> a year to delete from my Gmail. That I, that stuff. I tell people, don't stress about it. You can even put auto archive, auto mark as read and read it when you have time. Because yeah, people, no, I should. you know, it hangs over you if it's in your inbox. I tell people, don't worry about it. I'm not tracking who's opening these things. Like, I have But the fact is, David, you and I've always liked what you've had to say. I've always found it interesting and insightful and, and you've got a great sense of humor. Thanks again for coming on. We'll talk Thanks so much, Ron. It was a pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.